Uh, We're in a new series that we started a couple weeks ago, and we'll be in this series for a handful of weeks. And we are talking about uh, really God's mission in this earth to bless the world, to bless people, and that he calls us, if, if you're a Christian, he calls you to be a part, to be sent into this world, to be a part of what he is doing in the world. That if you're a Christian, we say Jesus is our Savior, but he's not only our Savior, he is our sender. He is the one that saves us and sends us to be a part of what he is doing in this world. And the big idea is that God wants to bless the world, and we are the strategy that he uses to do that. And this can be a difficult idea to think about because in this world that we live, if you're, if you're a Christian, it can kind of seem hard to be a Christian. It can seem hard to just live as a Christian, much less to be a part of saying, man, I want to bring this to other people. I want other people to experience God's presence in their life. So God has a call for us to be sent into the world and to be a part of him blessing people and to uh, be a part of other people coming to know him. And it can be hard to just say, man, it's hard to just live as a Christian, much less to actually be a part of bringing this into people's lives that at your job or in your neighborhood or maybe in, even in your family, it can seem sometimes, if you're a Christian, like you're an outsider in some ways. That you have different beliefs and different values and different priorities and different goals. And, and even in our world, often as, as we just kind of continue to progress as a society, as a culture, it can seem like Christianity is just kind of outdated. And uh, you as a Christian and wh- where you find yourself can even feel kind of ostracized. I mean, we're not thrown in jail or persecuted in that way, but it can kind of feel like you're just socially an outcast. If uh, people find out you're a Christian, it can kind of feel weird weird or kind of feel like people are like, oh, you're, you're one of those, uh, and I don't really want to catch that, you know, that you're kind of diseased in some way. It can, it can feel difficult to be a Christian. Um, in some ways, you can think about even just the representation of Christians in the media. Uh, Ira Glass, who is the host of This American Life, which is a great podcast, he's, he's an atheist, but even as he has just kind of looked at culture, he, he said this in an interview a few years ago. He said, I feel like Christians are really horribly covered by the media, like Christians seem like a really ripe target of opportunity. And, you know, if you think about Ned Flanders or uh, what that one gal from the office, I mean, I mean, it, it, Christians are always kind of represented as these self-righteous, judgmental people. And it's, it's something that can be difficult, right? If you're a Christian, you want to be a part of what God is sending us to do, but it can feel difficult because this is often how Christians are portrayed and you can get lumped into that. And even uh, this is from Barna Research that says, and I'm not going to go through all these different ways, but it says five ways Christians uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed as extremist. And the research has shown, this is recently, uh, this uh, last couple years, that as people are polled and kind of research comes out, that people say, man, yeah, Christianity is really extreme, that it's an extreme thing. And people are, I mean, sometimes even in the media, you'll hear uh, Christianity compared to kind of radical Islam terrorists and and evangelical Christianity is kind of lumped into that. So it can feel kind of hard to claim yourself as a Christian. A few years ago, there was also some research done talking about how the Christian community presents Jesus. And you probably can't read all this, but you can probably see the big blobs at least. And and down here is Pharisaical. Pharisees are the bad guys in the Bible, basically, the self-righteous, judgmental uh, people. Pharisaical attitudes and actions versus uh, Christ-like attitudes and actions. This is how much Christianity and Christians are associated with that of being self-righteous, judgmental, unlike 
Jesus, and this is a quote from the research that says, 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say the lifestyles of those believers are noticeably different in a good way, in any sort of good way. Uh, maybe even most famously, Gandhi said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So whether you think about just kind of the representation in the media, or you think about people viewing Christianity as extremist, or as judgmental and self-righteous like Pharisees, or even just thinking, okay, maybe Jesus is, I overheard these people talking at a coffee shop recently, talking about how awesome Jesus was, and they'd be like, yeah, if Jesus was around, man, I'd be all about that life. He was so cool, and he was so woke, and then I was like, this is a great conversation. Um, <laughs> And they, but they hated Christians, and it was very similar to, they didn't look like Gandhi, uh, they looked a little different than that, um, but they were, had, the same, had the same sentiment. And the early church, when Christianity first got started, it was very similar. When Christianity first got started, it was very difficult to be a Christian. People didn't like Christianity. It was something that people were, uh, there was at risk if you became a Christian. It was a risky thing to actually identify yourself with as it can be today. Not Again, not from a you're going to get thrown in jail standpoint, but from a socially ostracized standpoint. This is uh, from a church historian named Alan Kreider, and he says this, disincentives were strong. If you became a Christian, you could be gossiped about. You could be made sport of by workmates. You could get in trouble with your master. You uh, could be suspect to your neighbors. At times, becoming a believer could get you jailed or sent to the mines or killed. And there was a luxuriant variety of other religious options to choose from. He's saying there, there was really not a lot of reasons that people would become Christians. There was so many disincentives to becoming a Christian. And yet, here's the amazing thing. The church exploded. It grew. Some people, some historians and sociologists say it grew by 40% a year. I mean, it just exploded from this small group of people to now the world's largest kind of faith movement that exists. It grew from a small group in the Middle East to be a worldwide movement when, much like today, it was very risky in many ways to be a Christian, mainly because of the social costs to that. And here's what he says about Christianity growing. He says, we tend to assume this growth and to forget how surprising it was. Nobody had to join the churches. People were not compelled to become members by invading armies or the imposition of laws. Social convention did not induce them to do so. So it wasn't something that was forced on people. It wasn't something that was just kind of a peer pressure thing. Indeed, Christianity grew despite the opposition of laws and social convention. These were formidable disincentives. In addition, the possibility of death and persecution loomed over the pre-Constantinian church, although few Christians were actually executed. So, we are called to be a part of God's mission. We're called to be sent into this world to bring his presence into people's lives. And yet, it can be a very difficult thing to even associate with Christianity. And yet, the early church, in a very similar situation, in a very similar context, blossomed into something that, that blew up. It blossomed into this worldwide movement. So what was it? What was it that, that made their faith so attractive? What was it that made their faith so compelling that even though there was many disincentives, it still was something that became this movement? And this is an important question for us because I want you to think about this. What if, for you, 
What if for you, your faith wasn't an embarrassment in any way? What if your faith wasn't something that you felt like you had to hide in any way? What if your faith wasn't a source of perhaps your, your greatest kind of uh, risk factor, your greatest embarrassment or shame? What, what if it wasn't that, but instead was your greatest asset? What if it was the thing that you actually knew? Man, there might be a lot of different issues that I have. And there might be a lot of different problems, but I know that my faith is actually something that will attract people, that will draw people, that will compel people to see something about God. This is what was true of the early church and can be true of us as well. So here's the question. How can we have a faith that's attractive? How can we be in the middle of a context that sees Christians as extreme and self-righteous and judgmental? How can we be in the middle of that and yet have a faith that is extremely attractive, that maybe just draws people to God instead of repels them? And to begin understanding this, to begin exploring this, let's look at this question, which is, how will the world be attracted to God? What, what is God's plan for this? What's God's plan for attracting the world to himself? And, and put simply, here's what it is. It's to create a different kind of community that shows him as a different kind of God. God's plan to attract the world to himself, to show the world something better, something different, is to create a different kind of people, a different kind of family, a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of community that shows a different kind of king, a different kind of God. Now, if we go back into the Old Testament, kind of the early books that were written about God's people, Israel, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God saves people from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They were, they were, um, they were slaves, and, and Jesus delivers them. God, God delivers them. You've seen the stories or heard the stories. Of, you know, God leads them through the Red Sea, and he delivers them, and he's going to now lead them into a new land, and they are going to be his people. And before he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, kind of all that stuff that, that you know about, now before God does that, he reminds them who they are, what he's done, and what their calling is to be. And, and here's what he says. This is in Exodus 19. This is God speaking. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He is giving them what their calling is. He reminds them what he's done, and now he tells them what their calling will be in this earth. And one of the things that he says is, you will be a kingdom of priests. Now, when you think about a priest, you probably think about this. And, and this, is, this is what they looked like. Uh, they had special clothes and all this different stuff, represented different things. And, and I won't go into all, what all that meant. But when you think about a priest, this is probably what you think about. And yet, God tells them something. He says, you are not just to have a priest. You're not just to have a priest. But you as a people, you as a group, are actually to be a kingdom of priests. That's a very interesting thing. What, what, is, what does that actually mean? Well, you see, what the function of a priest is, what the function of a priest is, is to represent people to God and to represent God to people. 
And this is what an individual priest does. But God says, here's your calling. Here's what I have for you as my people. As my people, here's your call. It's to represent, it's represent me to people and to represent them to me. Here's how uh, Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says this. He says, the job of priests then was to bring God to the people and bring the people to God. God says to Israel as a whole people commenting on this verse, you will be for me to all the rest of the nations what your priests are for you. Through you, I will become known to the world, and through you, ultimately, I will draw the world to myself. You see, this is the calling that God gives to his people. It's to be priests, to be people that actually draw others to God, to be people that when people look at this nation, Israel, when people see them through that, God draws people to himself. Now, when you get to the New Testament, When you get to the New Testament, Peter, who was one of the early leaders of the church, he takes up this this same images, these same ideas from Exodus and says, this is now what Christians are called to do. Here's how Peter says this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Same thing in Exodus. This is all coming from Exodus. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How will the world be attracted to God? Here's what God says. He says, here's what God says in Exodus and what Peter says to the church. He says, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, God has saved you. If you're a Christian, God has given you mercy. If you're a Christian, God has given you grace that none of us deserved. I mean, if you're a Christian in this room today, God has forgiven you of your sins. He's cleaned you. He's made you righteous. He's taken away your shame. He's taken away all guilt that, that you don't even have to have anymore. God has, he's given you grace. And he's freed you from spiritual slavery. He has freed you from the bondage that that keeps us from being who God has called us to be and from being fully human even. That he has made you his treasured possession, as it says in Exodus. That, That if you're a Christian, God says, you're mine and I treasure you. That you belong to me. See, what Peter says and what God says in Exodus is if you're a Christian, this is who you are. And now... We are to show this, to represent this to other people, to be a kingdom, to be a group, to be a family, to be a community of priests who have the calling to represent God to the world. Now, let me give you an illustration that maybe can help us understand this. See, Jesus says with this also that he is creating a kingdom. He's creating a kingdom of priests. And a lot of times during... Uh, election season or kind of leading up to that, people will say things like, hey, if, if whatever uh, person you don't like, whatever candidate you don't like, if, if they win, I'm going to move to Canada, right? That's a lot of times what people will say. Uh, I actually was talking to someone about, I was using, I was teaching another class and talking to someone about this, and they said, no, I actually have a friend that is doing that. They're actually doing it. And most people, you know, it's just, it, no one really usually puts their money where their, their mouth is, but, and I don't know why this picture, this team, the, the subtitle says, these hockey fans sure make being uh, Canadian look like fun. Um, so I think this is all they do in Canada is they go to hockey games and wear wigs. Um, but sometimes people will say that, right? 
They'll say, if this person wins, I will move to Canada. And no one ever says, like, I'll move to North Korea. It's never something super extreme. It's always just, I'm going to travel a few miles north. Uh, it's, it's never that extreme. But people say this, and what, what, are, they, what are they saying? Like, what, what's, what's kind of behind that idea? It's maybe in a different kingdom with a different king, with different leaders, with different laws, with, with different ways of doing things. Maybe in a different kingdom, in a different place, things will be better. Life will be different. Maybe if there's a different king in a different kingdom, life will be better. My quality of life and the experience of that will be improved. This is, this is what Jesus is actually saying that he comes to do. But here, here's what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you don't have to leave. You don't have to go to Canada. You don't have to leave. You don't have to go to another place. What if in the middle of this kingdom, in the middle of Denver, in the middle of our world, what if in the middle of this kingdom, there was a different kind of kingdom? What if there was a kingdom within the kingdom that we could have? What if in the middle of this kingdom with all its problems and all its issues and all its sorrows and all its pains and all all the things that we don't like, what if in the middle of that, we were actually a part of a different kind of kingdom? What would that be like? Now, this is, again, an idea that maybe can seem really kind of out there, but but let me give you another illustration. There's a place like this. We call it the Magic Kingdom. (laughs) That is the name of Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, right? They call it the Magic Kingdom, and what is it supposed to be? Disneyland is supposed to be a kingdom within this kingdom where the values are different and the beliefs are different, the quality of life is different, and the leaders are mice, and it's different, right? (laughs) It's a different kind of kingdom. But that, that's kind of you know, funny, but the, the New York Times did an article a while ago talking about really that this is what Disneyland was built with. Disneyland was built with this very idea in mind to say, let's create a different kingdom within this kingdom where people can experience everything they've hoped for, everything they've dreamed for. Here, here's some pieces of this article. It says, in the world of Disney, listen to the religious language really in this, we feel homesick for a home that never really existed. Yet everything we care about, whether being loved or feeling right or having fun or looking good, stems from a set of narcissistic, and they're using this in a good way, but a set of narcissistic compulsions that Disney embraced and built to graphic completion. That we feel homesick for a home that never really existed, yet we can finally experience it in this kingdom. Or he talks about uh, bringing his daughter to Disneyland. Says, it was as if she'd met the world as it really should be. And it was bliss to see her so full of faith. Walt Disney wanted to build a place that would stand against the horrors of the known world. Where rockets were golden zephyrs, not nuclear weapons. Where trains could be any color of the rainbow made for the transport of children, not prisoners. And where every fear came wrapped in a yelp of sheer delight. With Disneyland, Walt Disney felt he was giving America a better version of itself. Now, that's what it means to have a kingdom within a kingdom. That's what Disneyland was built for. But that is exactly what the Bible says, what Jesus says the church is to be. See, the church is to be a kingdom within the kingdom of the world. A place that is the home that we yearn for and long for and yet actually does exist. Where all the sorrows are undone. Where all the things that are bad and evil in this world don't actually happen in God's kingdom. That's what the church is to be. 
A place where you suffer, yes, because we're still a part of this kingdom, and yet you experience the comfort of God. A place where you have needs, yes, but they're met by people around you that love you and care about you. A place where differences do not divide us. A place where righteousness and justice reign. A place that is the kingdom that we yearn for and long for. Jesus says that's what he comes to build. The Bible says that is what the church is. Peter says, Exodus says, God says, I want you to experience life with me as king. I want you to experience life with me as your king. You don't have to go to Canada. You don't have to go to Disneyland. But what if you could still be transported into a different kingdom where everything that the world was intended to be, where the better version, as Disney wanted, the better version of America, the version we long to become, what if the version of humanity that was originally designed to be created, what if we could live in that. That's what God says he wants for us. This is so important because, listen, God doesn't just want you to believe in him. God wants you to believe in him, but that's not his end game. God doesn't just want you to believe in him. He wants you to belong to him, to be a part of his kingdom, to experience life with Jesus as king. Imagine what that would be like. He says, this is what will attract the world to me. That if the church is a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people representing me to them. And, and let me even just say this. If, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to, to read books about God, to try to get to know who Jesus is, to get your questions answered that are important questions. But, but you need more than that. You need more than that. See, the way that God presents his strategy for you to get to know what he is and what, what life with him could be like is to actually be a part of a community. So what I would even just encourage you, if you're somebody that's here because you kind of want to test out Christianity or explore it, a sermon's great or average, I don't know, but it's, it's at least something, right? <laughs> a sermon's, a ser my sermons are great, okay? But it's not enough. It's not enough. What you need is a community to actually see what this kingdom looks like. This is what God's strategy is to attract the world to himself. To, I mean, you can read blogs about Disneyland and you can listen to Disneyland songs and watch movies, but that's nothing like actually going and seeing Disneyland. And Jesus says, I want you to come experience my kingdom. So I would even just encourage you, if you're kind of testing out faith, go visit our community groups and say, I'm going to just kind of see what this is about. I'm going to see what maybe the kingdom of God looks like, what this kingdom of priests looks like. He, he wants you to actually taste it. So this is what God's plan is to attract the world to himself. But if it is on us to represent God to people, to show them, what, what kind of lives does that actually require? What kind of lives attract others to God? God says, you are my representation. You are my people that are to be a kingdom showing the world what I'm like. But what kind of lives then are we to live? What kind of lives are, are we to live that show what God is like? And Peter uses this word that describes it and sums it all up. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
And he goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's people that are not Christians, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, people are going to criticize you, they're going to have problems with you, but when they do that, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All of this, Peter says, is what it means to be holy what it means to be a holy people, the kind of lives that we need to represent God to the world, to attract others to God, our lives of holiness. Now, this is a word that uh, we we don't necessarily really understand that much. It seems kind of like an antiquated religious word and has religious connotations, but here's what holiness means. It's kind of a couple different ideas with holiness. First, holiness is just a reality. See, to be holy means that you are distinct or set apart. To be holy is the idea that something has been cut off or removed for a special purpose. So when God says that his people Israel are holy, or when Peter says that the church is holy, he says you are holy doesn't say you need to be this, but he says you are holy, which means you are distinct. You have been separated. You have been chosen for God as his own. I was at a wedding yesterday, and as they do at weddings, there was uh, flowers and bouquets and all of that stuff. And, and what happens when, when you build a bouquet, when the bride has her bouquet, and it's this beautiful thing that she holds, right? What, what happens? How do you get that? Now, the way that you get that is you have a bunch of flowers and you choose ones, you separate them, you choose ones to be distinct for a special purpose, to even to represent what this person is and what this day is about. You take and separate and make distinct ones for a special purpose. This is what holiness is. God says, you are holy. I have chosen you. You belong to me. I have a purpose for you. You are distinct to represent me. God says, you are my special people that I have brought for myself. So holiness is a reality, but holiness is also a calling because he goes on to say, here's what holiness looks like. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and conduct yourselves honorable among those that do not know Jesus. There's a reality of holiness. God has separated you, and then there's a calling to holiness, which is to say, be who you are. Be distinct. Be the people that I have separated you to be. Be a different kind of kingdom. Be who you are, which is mine. Be the people that I have made you to be, which is separated especially for me. Be these kind of people. Now, here's what this means with the call of holiness. It means that all of our life, all of our life is to be shaped by who he has been to us. Because of what holiness means is God has said, you belong to me. I have chosen you to be my special people. Then what it means in the call to holiness is to be everything that God has been to us, to represent him. This is where the priest idea and the holiness idea come together, that what it means to be holy is that we live all of life shaped by, formed by who God has been to you. Does your life look like, is your interactions with other people look like the way God has been to you? That's what 
holiness means. And it's a comprehensive reality. See, when we think about holiness, again, oftentimes it's just a religious idea. You may think of maybe Sunday is a holy place, and so you uh, take off your hat. And we, you know, we don't, uh, I see a couple people with hats, so I wasn't trying to offend you. We, you know, we don't really do that, but if you grow up kind of in an old school church, maybe it was like, okay, you're, this is a holy place, so I need to take off my hat. I remember growing up, I was like, this is God's house. You know, you can't have a hat because God hates hats, apparently. I don't know why, why that is, but, you know, take off your hat. Or you can think of kind of religious things. As, as holy. But in the Bible, when it talks about holiness, in, in the book of Leviticus, which is kind of a scary book if you've ever read through it, but in the book of Leviticus, it talks about holiness. But when it talks about holiness, it's not just these religious kind of ceremonial things. That's a part of it, but it's a comprehensive reality because holiness is saying God has made you his and you are to live your entire life shaped by who he has been to you. And so in the book of Leviticus, again, from Christopher Wright, he says, holiness in Leviticus 19, which is one of the main chapters that talks about it, it involves these things, respect within the family and community, exclusive loyalty to Yahweh as God, proper treatment of sacrifices, we might think of some of those things as holiness, but economic generosity in agriculture, observing the commandments regarding social relationships, economic justice in employment rights, social compassion to the disabled, judicial integrity in the legal system, neighborly attitudes and behavior, loving one neighbor as oneself, sexual integrity, preserving the symbolic tokens of religious distinctiveness, rejection of practices connected with idolatrous or occult religion. Again, we think more of these ones, but it's also no ill treatment of ethnic minorities, but rather racial equality before the law and practical love for the alien or immigrant as for oneself, commercial honesty in all trading transactions. This is what holiness is. It's much more comprehensive, it's much more robust than simply religious ceremonies or observation. You see, it's supposed to touch all of our lives. It's to say, who has God been to me? And what would that mean then in all my relationships? And in the book of Peter, which is really talking about Exodus and Leviticus and talking about how the church is now this same kind of community, right after the passage we looked at, he goes on to talk about, hey, you are to live holy, you're to be a kingdom of priests. In the very next sections, he talks about what that looks like in marriage what that looks like in your job when you have a bad boss, what it looks like when you suffer, what it looks like in the government. And he goes on to lay out normal, everyday, practical living of this is what holiness is. Who has God been to you? How has God treated you? How has God saved you? How has God loved you? How has God, how has God treasured you? And what would that mean then in all of your life, in all of your relationships. This is what holiness is. And it's, it's seen when, when you look at that list and when you look at what Peter goes through, it's seen mainly because we're talking about how God has loved us and served us. It's seen mainly, holiness is seen mainly in how we serve other people. Holiness is seen mainly in the way we treat other people with a loving, gracious spirit and action. This is what the early church did. This is what the early church did that made their faith, even in the middle of a world that found them strange, that found them odd, that found their values and their beliefs weird. Even in the middle of that world, they lived this out, which made them attractive. Here is what one Roman emperor who was anti-Christian 
said about Christianity. He, he also, you'll see, he refers to Christians as atheists because the Romans had this pantheon of gods. And Christians said, we just believe in this one God. It's like, you atheist. And so here is what the Roman Emperor Julian says about Christians. He says, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He says, man, people are getting drawn. We're supposed to, maybe we should take care of our people, but the Christians are taking care of everybody. And it's drawing people. It's attracting people. He doesn't say this, but they're living holy. They're living in a way of who God has been to them, that they are now to others, especially seen in serving people, which draws people to God. Here is another way that uh, this is from, again, from this uh, historian, but it's an early letter in the church. Uh, It's a letter to a man named Diognetus, and it says this, Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. So they're, they're kind of the same. It's not like they're this special group of people. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own. They haven't left and built their own cities. They don't use a strange dialect. That's not true anymore. Or live life out of the ordinary. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each. They're just living where they're at. They're just normal people living normal lives. And yet, they show forth the character of their own citizenship. They're showing they're part of a different kingdom in a marvelous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs in what they wear and what they eat and in the rest of their lives. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens, meaning people that don't really belong there because they're a part of a different kingdom. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them. People would leave their babies out to die. Once they are born, they do not expose them once they are born. They share their meals, they serve people, but not their sexual partners. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives, they supersede the laws. They are impoverished, and yet they make many rich. See, he's observing Christianity and says they're just normal people in so many ways they just live in the cities they just talk the same dress the same but they're showing you're a part of a different kingdom what what it would be like if Mickey Mouse was you know running around doing things you'd be like you're bringing that other kingdom this magical kingdom into our lives he says that's what Christians are like they're they're showing a different kind of kingdom and it's drawing people to a different kind of God See, this is the kind of life that attracts others to God. You might seem weird to your friends. You might seem weird to your coworkers or your family, but what if you live like this? What if you lived representing God to people in all areas of your life, saying, here's who God has been to me, so here's who I am to others? What, What if we asked, how can I present God to this person? How can I represent what God is like? What if at your work or in your home or with family members, you said, what would it look like here 
if Jesus was king? And you began to live that out. What if in your neighborhood and in our city, you began to ask and think, if Jesus was king here, what would it look like? You began to live that out. See, that can mean so many different things. It can mean grace to those that sin against us. It can mean forgiveness. It can mean handling conflict in different ways. It can mean rest and Sabbath because we're not driven by the laws of the land to succeed and have success be some sort of idol. It can mean finding ways to serve those that are poor or are in need of help. We have people in our church that have adopted or done foster care. We have people in our church and all of our community groups right now are working on uh, a benefit for uh, an organization in Denver that helps to get women out of the sex trafficking industry. It can look like that. It can look like all sorts of things to say, if Jesus was king, what would it look like? And that's going to be different for for all of us, in different ways and in different interactions, but what if those were the questions that we asked? See, Jesus' plan isn't to take you out of your job or take you out of your relationships or remove us from a world that thinks we're strange. His plan isn't to take us away from that, but to keep us present there and yet representing him, representing a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. So it's to be holy, to live holy lives, but, but secondly, it's not just individually that we do this. People must see the Christian community. They don't just need to see your life. It's not just your life that will attract other people to God. It's the life of the community. Look at all the different plural language it uses. We, we already looked at this, but just remember, it's a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people, God's people. It's this plural language to say when people see a kingdom of priests, when they see a community, when they see a nation, when they see a different kind of race that has come together, when they see that, that's where people say, I see God. See, if you're just walking around and and you see Minnie Mouse, you're not going to say, this is the magic kingdom. But in Disneyland, when you see it all working together, you see a different kind of kingdom. And the church the way that people will see a different kind of God is not just through your life as an individual, but it's through our life together as a community. This is why it's so important that we are actually loving and serving and belonging to each other, not just being a good moral person. That's not God's highest aim for your life is just be good, but it's a different kind of community where we are loving serving, having grace for, forgiving one another. And people see that and say, clearly these are citizens of a different kind of kingdom. See, Jesus wants people to experience his kingdom. And it happens, the way that that happens is through lives of holiness. Lives that say, I live the way God has been to me. All of my life is shaped by who he has been to me. So final question to explore is this, how can we live these kind of lives? Because that can be kind of challenging to think through. What, what do we actually need to do to live holy lives that attract people to God to see a different kind of kingdom? What kind of lives? How, how do we do this? How? Well, the first thing is this, we must listen to God's voice. We must listen to his voice. He, he said this in Exodus. He said, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep 
my covenant. Then you will be this kind of people. So we actually have to listen to God's voice. If we want to live these kind of lives, we have to listen to his voice because we can't obey him. We can't live lives shaped by everything that he has been to us if we're not actually listening to his voice. This is so important because some voice, some values of some kingdom will shape us. In your life, we do not just float along and live the way we're living just by our own free will. Some voices will form you. Some kingdom values will shape how you interact in this world. There was an article this week in Wired, which is kind of a technology magazine website, and it's, the title is, My Father Says He's a Targeted Individual. Maybe we all are. He's talking about people that, that think, man, the CIA is after me. The CIA is kind of beaming things into my mind. They're, they're controlling me. And, and maybe you have met some people like this. And, and he says his father, he's, he's writing about his dad's experience, believing kind of the CIA is targeting him to mess with him and put information to control his life. But the whole point of this, he says, is what if that's actually happening in a different kind of way? What if with technology and algorithms and you, you know, people talk about this all the time, right? You have a conversation with friends and then you look on Facebook and there's an ad and you're like, how, how did they know we were talking about that? And he says, maybe actually we are being led. Maybe we are being influenced in a different way. He says this, instead of moving through the world, he says, this is not what we are doing. Instead of moving through the world as autonomous actors with original thoughts and inquiries, we become objects of what is dictated to us via the digital realm. It is unseating us as masters of our own destinies and distorting the fabric of reality as we know it. Now, this is not some kind of conspiracy theorist, extreme person. He's just saying, this is what's happening. You're not as free as you think you are. You're not as autonomous as you think you are. That there are market factors at work to influence us and lead us and to create a different kind of reality. It's just true. We're all subject to this. Now, my point with that is this. He's not making a religious point. He's just making a point to say, your life is influenced by things all the time that you're not aware of. How can we live the kind of lives that, that actually show God to the world? We have to listen to his voice because there's thousands of other voices seeking to influence our lives all the time. Which means we have to proactively say, man, if I'm gonna have a different kind of value system, if I'm going to be a part of a different kind of kingdom, I can't be formed by every other voice around me. I must actually listen to the voice of God. Let that shape my heart. Let that shape my mind. Are you doing that? Do you take time to listen to God's voice and then obey what he actually says? To actually live out a different value system, a different, a different kingdom representing a different kind of God. I mean, what areas in your life would need to change to more accurately represent, here's who Jesus is? What areas in your life do you need to say, am I presenting him how he is? Am I a citizen of a different kingdom, or am I just formed living the life everybody else is living? Look, this, this is hard. It's hard to live in a world with different values. It's hard to say we're a kingdom inside of a kingdom. That is a difficult, challenging thing. 
It's a difficult, challenging thing because the world around us says, no, it's materialism or it's your beauty or it's all about self or it's all about, I mean, there's all this different stuff that's forming us all the time, which is why we have to say, if I'm going to represent who God is, I actually have to listen to his voice. I need to listen to his voice. And, and the second thing is we need community. We need community to actually form us because to live as a Christian is hard. To live as a Christian is hard. To live as a part of God's mission is hard. And so we need community around us to form us. The most powerful thing that will form your life is not just the books you read or the sermons you listen to. The most powerful thing to shape the kind of person you are will be the kind of community that you are a part of. Jonathan Haidt, who is a moral psychologist, again, an atheist, this is an excellent book that I would recommend, best-selling book, he talks about how religious communities form people. And he says this, why are religious people better neighbors and citizens? And this is just based on research. To find out, Putnam and Campbell included us, included on one of their surveys, a long list of questions about religious beliefs, as well as questions about religious practices. These beliefs and practices turned out to matter very little. What you believed didn't matter that much, and what you did didn't matter that much in the sense of, well, did you, do you read your Bible, or do you go to church? Or That's not what mattered very much in influencing the kind of lives of good neighbors and citizens. The only thing that was reliably and powerfully associated with the moral benefits of religion was how enmeshed people were in relationships with their co-religionists. It is religious belongingness that matters for neighborliness, not religious believing. Very fascinating. But what that says is this. If you want to be, if we want to be a different kind of people that represent a different kind of God, it is not just our beliefs. It's not even just our practices. It is are we enmeshed in a community that helps us to become the kind of community God has called us to be. And finally, the last thing that we need in order to live these kind of lives is we need to see Jesus as the kind of king that he is. See, if our calling as a community is to be a kingdom of priests, one that represents God to other people, we have to see who he is first. If we want to show people, here's what Jesus is like, here's how my interactions are shaped by who he's been to me and what he's done for me, we have to spend time seeing who he is and the kind of king he is. This is what Peter actually says too when he says, live such good lives, live, have your conduct among the Gentiles be honorable so that they would glorify God. That's to say, when you live this way, it shows what God is like. But that means our actions have to be shaped by who he is. Exodus says the same thing. When God prefaces the kind of community they are to be, he wants to remind them what he did for them so that they focus on that first. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did. He's reminding them, you've seen it. You've already experienced it. You've seen the grace. You've seen the freedom. You've seen the liberation of what I did. Therefore, then he tells them how to live and what to do. You see, if we want to be the kind of community that God has called us to be, then we've got to see him as a different kind of king. Do you see Jesus as the one that has served you? that has given you grace in the middle of your sin, that has forgiven you no matter how far you've gone, that has taken away shame, that has given you his righteousness? Do you see Jesus as the kind of king that says, yeah, you are far from me, but I pursued you. Yes, you are a stranger, 
but I made you my own. Do you see Jesus like that? Do you see Jesus as the one that washes your feet? As the one that says, I want to comfort you. The more that we begin to see him in that way, the more then that we know how and are moved by being able to be these kind of people. This is who the king is that might think we're strange or might not quite get us or might even think we're extreme in the middle of that kind of world. We're able to thrive and we're able to bless the world. And people are able to be attracted to Jesus and to see him and experience a different kind of family. And when we take communion, we remember this king and his values. And at the very core of it is Jesus, a man who is God that came to this earth and had his body broken and his blood shed. That is the cornerstone, the foundation of this kingdom. And when this person, when the good news, the gospel of what he's done is at the epicenter of our kingdom, of our family, of our community, then everything changes. Our lives are changed and the people around us begin to see a different kind of God because we're a different kind of people. So as you take communion, just remember this king and even bring your sin to him, confess to him where we have not lived as a part of this and receive forgiveness. And then we sing songs to praise and celebrate and remember how good he is. Would you sing with me? Father, and pray with me first. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sing my prayer, but... <clears throat> Father, I pray even now that, that you would just move in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Help us to, to see the kind of king you are, and God, change us to more and more reflect the kind of king you are, both to each other, but to the world around us, to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our city. So Jesus, even as we sing and even as we take communion, let us see you. Let us worship you. I pray this in your name. Amen.